we are finishing up a short series, mini-series, if you will, about our faith, and we're looking at obscure passages. And so, back up over here, I want you to um, note that I chose a title that I'm not really dealing with primarily. But I thought, you know, after a couple of obscure phrases, I give one that we're all familiar with. <laughs> and yet it's the establishing the law through faith. That phrase is really what we are looking at this morning. Uh, but it's going to tie in with James chapter 2. And we'll finish off with that passage in James and look at that and how it fits in with this passage that we're looking at in verse 31 of, of Romans chapter 3. And I want to reread what Michael had read for us, and I appreciate Michael reading that text says there, and I'm going to back up to verse 27 because it goes back to the sermon last Sunday. Where is the boasting then? That is, if, if we are not righteous before God, and we cannot be righteous by way of works through the law, where's the boasting, he says? Is it excluded? By what law is it excluded then? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or, is he the God of the Jews only? The one who had given the law to the Jews that we can read of in the second chapter of Romans? Is he of the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles, just as was given in that second chapter? Yes, of the Gentiles also, Paul says. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. When we look at that phrase, we establish the law, and then when you look at the last two sermons that we're talking about, by virtue of the fact that we are justified by faith, it it's easy for some to come to an extreme conclusion when the messenger is giving his messages. When here we establish the law through faith, that we are saved by faith, that we are justified by faith, well, hmm, what's the message, Mitch? Think about this. And I, I'm giving you examples because this has happened to me. <laughs> you preach on baptism and someone comes up to me and says, well, don't you believe in faith? Yeah. So it's like you have to have the caveat that if you're going to preach on baptism, you have to have the other things, if you will. You can't just teach on baptism and, and everything that you want to talk about regarding that. Conversely, you teach on faith in Christ and some say, well, don't you believe in being baptized for the mission of your sins? <laughs> yes. Gave that sermon the other week. <laughs> the reason why I said that is it happens to messengers that when you preach on something and you leave out certain things, some will say, well, how come you didn't say that? Well, the focus was on baptism, or the focus was on faith. Or when we're talking about the subject matter on keeping the law, well, don't you believe in grace? Yeah. <laughs> well, how come you didn't teach about that when you were talking about the law? Or if you were to teach on grace, well, don't you, need, don't you understand that we need to have balance and know that there's law keeping? Yeah. <laughs> in other words... What is going on here is no different than what went on in the first century. What the teachings that we take place today or that we talk about today, when we talk about any subject matter and someone says, well, what about this? And so what happens is we have this extreme mindset that based upon the information that we are getting, 
our minds are kind of clocking forward and saying, well, what about that then? That's exactly what Paul is having to deal with when he's talking about these subject matters. Because there is a group among the saints at Rome who are teaching the need to keep the law of Moses. And Paul is having to deal with that to such an extent that when you read the first eight chapters of Romans, you think, this guy's just going overboard about being justified by faith, being justified by grace, talking about the law of the Spirit, talking about the law of righteousness, talking about the law of sin. And Wait a second. What's his point? I mean, I get it already. Well, the point was that just as surely as he dealt so much with that, you get a passage like Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we sin that grace may abound because we're saved by grace and we're justified by faith through grace? Is that what should we, we should do? Paul understood that as in the first century, this goes on today, we understand the same thing that he did, that people are going to overreact and take an extreme position. And so we're no different than what went on in the first century. He knew that he would get a particular reaction for what he was talking about regarding how we are justified by faith. And yet this is a very central teaching in the New Testament. We can read passage after explicit passage that teaches this. And we know it mentally and academically, but when it's preached on, it's easy to have that reaction. That's why when I was doing these three lessons, I saved the last one with the title, Faith Without Works, because that's a very important step for us to understand. We need that balance. But some can easily overreact by any of these lessons. And so the question that, that Paul was given, rhetorically speaking, is if we're not saved or we cannot boast in the law, and Paul is specifically talking about the law of works regarding the law of Moses. Do we nullify the law through faith? Do we abolish it? Do we destroy it? What do we do? He says, may it never be. Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews who understood what it was like to live under that law and live meticulously by that law, understood that it was through Jesus Christ that he found salvation. The law he finally understood, was not the means by which salvation came. It was a means to bring people to Christ. And so he is saying, we don't nullify the law, certainly not. In fact, on the contrary, what we do is we establish the law. So the question when we look at this is, if we're saved by faith, how do we establish the law? Ever stop to think about that? When we're talking about obscure phrases, sometimes it's easy to, to read through these things, and it's, let it go right over our heads. If we were to look at that phrase, we establish the law from a very literal perspective, what does that mean? I mean, if we just took Webster's defin definition for establish, what does that mean to establish? To set up, right? Or to found something? Like the beginning of something. You know, we establish bylaws for whatever the organization is. It means you're setting it up. Well, if that's the meaning, that doesn't make sense because we know that we are just those who are created by our lawgiver. <laughs> we don't create laws. This is not something that we're in the practice of doing. We uphold the laws that our creator and lawgiver has given to us. That's what we do. And I believe that's the point that, that Paul is getting at. But there's a, there's a picture that Paul is thinking as he's going through this rhetorical question, how do we establish the law? Well, I believe that for us, 2,000 years later, we need to know what the purpose of the law was. 
If we can understand the purpose that the law had in God's eternal scheme, that God had this eternal plan that through His Son, Jesus Christ, we're going to be saved, then what purpose did the law have so that we can understand this phrase, we established the law? And I believe it's found in Scriptures. When you look at law itself, the law was set up in particular as a means, as we talked about earlier, to reveal the righteousness of God and His standard of righteousness. But when we're talking about those who have sinned against God, we know that the law that shows us God's standard of righteousness and our obedience to it is the very same law that gives us a creed, if you will, a teaching, a revelation, excuse me, a revelation of what we need to do if we break that law. And so when you read Hebrews chapter 9, and I want us just to take a moment out of Romans chapter 3 and look at Hebrews chapter 9 and we'll look at Hebrews chapter 10, and then we'll come back to Romans chapter 3 among other places, we can see this purpose that God had for the law. In verse 22 of the text, after he's talking about the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who mediates on our behalf, he says this, and according to the law, in verse 22, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Go back to the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned. Do you notice the first thing after the account of Adam and Eve's sin? When you leave chapter 3 and the curses have been made, what's the first account? Cain and Abel, right? Interesting that Cain and Abel's account is right after sin. What you see there, and I'm not going to make more than what is directly revealed in the text, but it does give us thought to Hebrews 9 verse 22. What you have there is a sacrifice being offered to God. One with blood. One without it. One done by faith and one not. When you couple that passage of Scripture in uh, Genesis chapter 4 with Hebrews chapter 9, without blood there is no forgiveness. In other words, God had set forth a law that says, here's what you need to do. But if you break this law... There's going to be a need for blood to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. Fast forward thousands of years later. And what you have is our Savior who came into this world and whose blood had been shed. You see, the blood offerings through the law were never meant to be a perfect sacrifice. It was only serving as a shadow. Go, go on to chapter 10. In chapter 10 he says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach, that is, approach God, approach His throne, perfect. The law was never meant for it. The law was serving only as a shadow in this regard. And so, when we look at the law of Moses, what did it require? It required payment for sin. And that was a shedding of blood. And what we see is that the shedding of blood had been taking place over the, the millennium. So that there would be this shadowy figure, if you will, of something greater to come. A better sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, whose blood, when shed, would bring 
forgiveness of sins, the way God meant for it ultimately to be forgiven. That's what he's done. So when we get to these texts like in Hebrews chapter 10, and we know the purpose of the law served as a shadow for the gospel message. Particularly served as a shadow of the ultimate sacrifice that's going to come through Jesus Christ. That's why when you read Hebrews chapter 10, after verse 1 when he makes this point that the law could never make perfect, or through the, the uh, blood of bulls and goats could never make perfect, that sacrifice for which we have the forgiveness of sins. But notice what he goes on to say. For then, verse 2, that is, if the law and the sacrifices which were rendered and revealed through that law, if it could, they would not have ceased to be offered. In other words, it was a rhetorical question when he says, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? If the law that said, by offering these blood of bulls and goats, it could remove sin perfectly, it would still be in continuance today if it did what God intended it to do. But just as the Hebrew writer says, this was just a shadow. He goes on to say, For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, that is, you know, the yearly sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, that you can read of in the book of Leviticus, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible, because God didn't set it up this way, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It was only serving as a shadow of such. Now, that's us because we have the rest of the story, if you will. The Jews, under that law, all they knew was, this is what God said, and that's what we're doing. That's how we have the forgiveness of our sins, even though there was a yearly reminder that they would have in, in partaking of the Day of Atonement. But that's a very important key if we're going to understand the purpose of the law. The gospel, however, revealed that Jesus is that perfect sacrifice. He is the true thing so that when you look at the shadow and you look at the real thing, now you get to see, oh, now I understand why the law was given. It served as a shadow that through the teachings of the law, people could not keep. And through the teachings of the law, the directives of the law, this is what needed to be done to have the forgiveness of our sins. But even those sacrifices weren't good enough because they were never meant to be. Brethren, this is not just scheme of redemption 101 here. This is not basic information that we're looking at that helps us academically understand the purpose of the Old Testament. This is to help us put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. Because remember the phrase is, we established the law. Through what? Through the keeping of the law? No. Through faith. Faith in Jesus. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And He is the one of which the law served as a shadow pointing toward Him. And that's why you can read passages like Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24 that tells us, well, what was the purpose of the law? Remember, back up from verse 16, verse 19, all the way through verse 24 following? It was added because of transgressions. Paul said there. But look at what he goes on to say in verse 24. What did the law serve as? A tutor. A schoolmaster. It was there in place, as God had intended for it to be, to bring people to faith in what? Or in who? In Jesus Christ. The law did exactly what God had. It was perfect in execution for what God intended it to be. It was to bring people to a knowledge, number one, 
that God is righteous and, and we're not. Number two, there has to be a means by which we are made righteous if we're going to have fellowship with God. And so number three, here's what you do to have the forgiveness of your sins so you can stand before God. Brethren, there's a reason why when you read through Numbers and, and when you read through uh, Leviticus and you read through the laws about being clean, when you read the laws regarding the, the consecration of the priests or the people for that matter, through Leviticus and Numbers, it's some of you, you might go, oh man, why do we read this? It's boring. It's very detailed, ceremonial, and just, uh, it's rich. All these shadows. All these shadows giving us a glimpse of what it's like to be fully cleansed in that great sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was just a tutor teaching. And that's what we have here. And so law served not only as a revelation of these things, but as a tutor to bring us to Christ. And so the gospel of, of salvation in Christ, by faith in Jesus as the Christ, is upheld when we, as children of God, as believers, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. It brings us to this idea that we're going to establish this law. The law that was serving as a shadow. How is it fulfilled? Because we believe in Jesus Christ. That's the message of what he's getting at. But the message even goes beyond that mindset. It's not simply and only that, okay, we have faith in Jesus Christ, of which the law was pointing toward, and thus we fulfill the law by virtue of believing that Jesus is the Christ, and that by our faith we're justified with God. That's why he uses Abraham in chapter 4 of Romans. And that is why he makes that contrast and comparison with Adam in chapter 5 of Romans. He makes it so that we can understand the full consequence of our belief in Jesus Christ. And that's the rubber right here. You see, when we talk about this establishing the law, there's a point by which when Paul in Romans chapter 6 verse 1 said, well, you know, if we're established by faith and that this is a gift given to us because of our sins, that we get God's grace, uh, well then maybe if we sin more, we get more of God's grace. Paul knew that there was going to be some that went to that extreme based upon his message. And that happens even today. So here's where Paul goes with this. See, chapter 7, here's the law. And he uses the law of marriage as an illustration. That we're bound under this particular covenant, this particular law. And then he goes on talking about how I would not know any of these things without law. So from verse 5 following in chapter 7. I would not have known covetousness, verse 7 in Romans 7. Unless the law says, thou shalt not covet. Okay, so now here's the law. It's telling me what to do, and I'm not keeping that. Oh, woe is me. I'm betwixt because I want to keep the law. But I fail. The things that I hate, I hate sin. But I still practice it. And that is why in the last part of Romans chapter 7, he says, Woe is me. Who is going to deliver me from this body of sin? This bondage that I'm in. Well, that's where we get into chapter 8. And I believe chapter 8 is the full-fledged answer to the question in Romans chapter 3, verse 31. Look at what he is saying here. He gets to the point by which he has just established very clearly we have been justified by faith, 
But just because we're justified by faith, it does not mean we live by faith without works. Just because we establish the law through faith in Jesus Christ and not boasting in law-keeping, in doing these various deeds, that doesn't mean that our life is empty without these deeds. We live through faith in Christ, and as a result, we live by another law. What law is that? Well, he tells us. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Well, what does that mean then? If we live through this law, what does that mean we live by the law of the Spirit? Well, here's what he goes on to say about this. For the law, verse 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh... God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. This is going and entering chapter 7 right now. He sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That's what Jesus did. So now verse 4. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Do we nullify the law? On the contrary, we establish the law. We fulfill the law. We uphold the law, is what Paul is saying. And so he is saying here, in verse 4, we do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When we look at this text, and we try to understand what's being said here, brethren, sometimes what I get in mindset that we might do in our walk with the Lord is we do a lot of whole, a lot of Bible study. We learn what God's Word says, and we fine-tune it. We get those hairs right down to we just we know the nuance. Or at least we try to. But we feel the very simple, simple message: you don't walk according to the flesh; you walk according to the Spirit. And just as our brother was praying this morning, that we have, as Steve was praying. We have the revelation of God's will through His Spirit. That was the whole purpose of the Spirit, right? To reveal the mind of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 following. So He reveals the mind of God. He reveals the law of God. He reveals the standard of righteousness that God has for us to live, which is pleasing to Him. Well, what is this law of the Spirit? You know, do we get the, do all these things, and here's the frankincense, and here's the myrrh, and here's all the ways that you make this atoning, uh, potpourri, if you will, for the incense? Do we have that? Well, if we do, I don't read of it in the New Testament. I don't know of all those specific things. But I tell you, some of us, we want that, right? I want it down. I want to know how long, you know, is this too short or is this too short or is this? I mean, I was going centimeters, by the way. We don't have that given to us. Now, we, we might go back to the old law and go, well, here's the priest and here's the nakedness and so on and so forth. But under the covenant we're under, we can know these principles that show us these things. But what is Paul saying? Is Paul getting at that? No. What he's getting at here is we believe that Jesus is the Christ. And we're going to live righteously according to the Spirit. Well, what, when we read the New Testament, does the Spirit reveal to us in how we should live? We'll go on further. In verse 5 of, of this text. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on 
what? The things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So we can come here and we can do everything as wonderfully perfect as revealed through Scripture, then go home and live according to the flesh? Brethren, we do that a lot as it is. We just have a difficult time admitting it. We could even hide it from each other if we're blind to our walk. And we're going to lose our souls over it. Because we might be doing things in the quote-unquote worship setting properly, but miss the big picture of walking according to the Spirit. I, I would venture to say, if we were to put those webcams on our walk, every one of us right now in our rooms, every area of our, of our work, everything, and everyone gets to see the true individuals that we are, how many of us would say, when looking at those videos of, of one another, that we're walking according to the Spirit versus walking according to the flesh? And that's the point that Paul's saying. If we're found in Jesus Christ, Galatians 3, verse 24 through 27, if we're found in Jesus Christ, we're heirs. We're heirs with Abraham because we walk by faith. In other words, if we're walking by faith, we're keeping the revealed will of God in our walk, and our minds are set on Him and His revelation, His will, not on things of this world. That's the message that Paul wants brethren to get at Rome. That's what he wanted the churches in Galatia to understand. That's what he wanted the brethren at Ephesus to understand. That we live by faith. When Paul was writing to Titus, he wants Titus to teach these things to the various congregations that he would be in the midst of. Look at what he says there in Titus chapter 2. This is in a nutshell what he is saying in Romans. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Back up here. It says here, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That is through Jesus. Teaching us that, Denying all ungodliness, or denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for what? For good works. That's why God made us. In Jesus Christ, that's why he made us. That's why you can read Romans chapter 8 as we did, verses 5 through 8. And we can see that we walk according to the Spirit. Why? Because he made us in Christ Jesus to live by faith. To walk by faith and to establish that old law that was serving as a shadow for that purpose. And when we do that, then what we're doing is we're recognizing that it's not this this law-keeping as if that's the means of our salvation. It's the furthest thing. That, that very principle he dealt with in Romans squashed it completely. And the very principle still exists, though, among some brethren. That that's how we are saved. That's not how we're saved. Salvation came through Jesus. He was that, that shining picture that the law was pointing to and shining upon or toward, if you will. But what it also means 
is that if we are found in Christ and we're going to establish that law, then we're going to live according to the Spirit. We're going to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And so when we look at Ephesians chapter 2, when you read verses 8 through 10, and verse 10 tells us we are created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? As the workmanship of God? For every good work. For everything that the Holy Spirit revealed. And just as Paul told Titus, to show righteousness. To show faithfulness. What does that mean then when we live? Our day-to-day lives show up. And that's where James 2 comes into play. Some of you say, I have faith. Well, you show me your faith without your works. I show you my faith. My faith that Jesus is the Christ and that I live in Him, through Him, and for Him. I'll show you my faith by my works. And when I do that, you're going to see I'm not doing these works as a means of my salvation. I'm doing it because of the one I live for. And when I do that, I establish that the law, that very law that was holy and good and pure, but was only temporary, shining toward Jesus as a shadow, it's fulfilled in my walk. Because I believe that Jesus is the Christ. And I believe that I'm going to follow in his footsteps. And that may mean people are going to hate me. That may mean people are going to despise and mock me because I proclaim that he is the only way to salvation. Then that's what I'm going to do. Brethren, we cannot. I I say this over and over through this series, and I'll finish through this series to make the point as absolutely clear as possible. You cannot ever have this mindset. If you do, get rid of it. I don't know if I'm doing enough to be saved. That's the reason for these series of lessons. You can never do enough. I mean, if if that was the means of your salvation, that would have been revealed to us in the Word of God, that we can do so much and then we're saved. But it's not there. What you do, though, to ensure your salvation to ensure it. And you can have confidence right now. Please don't think it's arrogant to think that you don't have confidence in your salvation because, boy, Paul sure did. And he's not having confidence just because he has this endowment of divine revelation that that's his means of confidence. His confidence was because of what Jesus did on the cross. And he lived for him. He walked according to the Spirit. He didn't walk according to the flesh. Look at his life that he sacrificed. He did things that would bring glory to God. That's how he lived. He lived with his mind up in the clouds of heaven and not with the lusts of the the earth here. And he showed by his life how we're justified. When you can see that we establish the law by our walking in the Spirit, we establish the law by showing that our Savior is the one who paid that penalty for our sins. Brethren, every one of us should be living for the Lord. Living righteously for the Lord. Upholding all those things that we've read in our Bible class in Philippians. Thinking on things that are true. Things that are noble. Things that are pure. Things that are holy. That we do the things that are shown in Galatians chapter 5 when you read verses 22 through 24 and contrasting the flesh from the Spirit that we're peaceable, that we're gentle, that we're loving, and that we're kind. 
Those are the things that are explicitly revealed as to those who walk according to the Spirit. That's how we're saved. So I want to ask you, when you hear lessons, always think, here's the message. What's the message you're getting in? If a person is teaching about law, does he negate the grace of God? Of course not. If he's teaching about the grace of God, is he negating law? Of course not. Look at that balance that the Scriptures reveal. And that's exactly what Paul was doing in the first century with the saints at Rome. And that's what we're doing today. Know that we're not saved by works of law-keeping. We're saved by the blood of Jesus. But through the blood of Jesus, we walk in Him according to the Spirit. We set our minds on Him. We set our minds on things above, James chapter 3. Friend, every one of us can do that. We don't need to be rocket scientists to walk worthy of that calling. We don't have to have a degree in theology to be well-pleasing to God. We know what His will is to be found in Christ, doing His will, reaching the gospel to the lost, building up the body of the saved. That's the work. That's what you read in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 following. And that's what we have as a conclusion to our law-keeping, if you will, through the spirit of the law, or the law, I should say, of the spirit.